0: Hello and welcome to the Let's Talk Azure podcast with your hosts Sam Foote
1: and Alan Armstrong.
0: If you're new here, we're a pair of Azure and Microsoft 365-focused IT security professionals. It's episode three of season four. Alan and I had a discussion around Azure functions recently. With serverless and microservices application architectures rising in popularity, we discussed this newer development approach. Here are a few of the things that we covered. What is serverless and what benefits does it bring? How is your functions compared to other Azure based serverless solutions, the costs of Azure functions and the languages and hosting options that are supported. We've noticed that a large number of you aren't subscribed. If you do enjoy our podcast, please do consider subscribing. It would mean a lot to us for you to show your support to the show. It's a really great episode. So without further delay, let's get started. Hey, Alan, how you doing?
1: Hey, Sam, not doing too bad. How are you?
0: Yeah, not too bad. Thank you. Uh, not too bad. Uh, it's been a busy week, um, and it's it's you know, um, it's back to podcasting, so it's yeah, episode after episode at the moment,
1: isn't it? Yeah, definitely, it's definitely been busy, and I'm still probably partially recovering from last week in my uh, my chat that I did in uh, InfoSec.
0: Oh, yeah, how did that go?
1: Uh, it went really well, actually, considering uh, I thought it was going to be um, more stressful than it was, I think it's fair to say
0: okay yeah so did you have a lot of um people attending and listening
1: yeah there's definitely it was packed yeah with people standing as well so wasn't a short crowd so good.
0: nice yeah that's that's really good i've i i wasn't there in person but i've heard really good feedback so yeah well done for it more to come for sure
1: yeah thanks well i think your know, podcast has helped with uh talking so
0: yeah definitely yeah definitely
1: Okay, so shall we crack on with this episode? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so should we start with an overview of what serverless is?
0: Yeah, okay, yeah. So, um, yeah, let's let's take it right back, actually, and start from sort of application development, really. Um, so web applications are primarily driven by APIs, um, and more specifically, really, uh, REST APIs, well, web applications are. Um, so, what 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 a, a REST API does is it it um, is an interface for uh, developers to essentially communicate programmatically with each other. So, you know, if I've got some sort of code that I want to expose to say Alan, I'll create an API for it. I'll tell Alan how to communicate with it, and then he will consume my API we'll effectively build a, a contract between each other, which is our sort of schema for our API. And, we, you know, Alan knows how I'm communicating and I know what formats Alan wants data in, basically. Um, and what's what's happened over time, and I'll just talk about web development for the moment, is is that what we used to do is we used to build these, and we still do, you know, to be fair, is build web applications or web APIs in monolithic applications. So all of our different API calls and everything would be bundled into one uh, code base, uh, so to speak. So one application. And then typically what you do is you'd um, then deploy that application onto some sort of infrastructure. So let's say a web server as an example. So let's say you built a C-sharp, you know, web API um, application that just exposed a bunch of APIs. Um, you might then, you know, upload that to IIS or you know App Service in Azure uh, for hosting. And um, that that's that's one way of um, you know d- you know doing APIs and and, and web development. Um, but sort of a more a, a newer approach is around effectively microservices architectures. And what that is is, once those applications get to a certain scale, they can become unmanageable. So, you know, imagine if you had a hundred Alan's. Well, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Have a hundred Alan's um, building API or uh, consuming APIs, and a hundred, you know, Sams, you know, creating APIs. What can then happen is, is because that one application becomes so big, um, you can have you can have issues with say deployment. So. When, you know, um, one team wants to roll out a new version, they may be blocked by another team because there may be commits that haven't passed QA yet that need to go ahead. You know, there's potentially many different uh, things going on there. Um, so so what some organizations do is they have sort of a, a, a microservice architecture where I'll use a very basic example. Say it's my responsibility. I'm the addition guy, Right. So I've got an API, you pass it two numbers, it adds them together and returns you the result. A very simple piece of business logic. Now, that traditionally might be baked into your monolithic application as like a module, you know, like a class library um, that you then import and use. But in a microservices architecture, and you wouldn't for addition because that's ridiculous, but it's just a, a simple example. But in a microtexture uh in uh, architecture, I would create an API um, that I would publish as a microservice. And all it does is do that addition. It doesn't do anything else. So I'm almost a tiny cog in the the bigger machine, um, if that makes sense. Now, there are some some benefits and obviously some drawbacks um, to that is one of the big benefits is um, different owners are, responsible for just, you know, very narrow business logic. Um, They can build in the technologies that they want to build in because we all talk, you know, APIs, basically REST APIs. We can communicate with each other because we understand that language that's common between different systems and programming languages. So I could be a C-sharp developer um, and Alan could be a Python developer. And as long as we both talk the same language to communicate with each other, effectively how we build is immaterial to each other that can help in really large organizations because you know um you might be a c-sharp um you know a traditionally like a c-sharp you know development um organization um but in your local area um you might have gone through all of your c-sharp developers you might not be able to find enough of them um so so some organizations have you know um different languages being used to, to spread technical knowledge, you know, across different teams. So there's, there's, there's a few reasons. And and really the main reason is that, you know, that split architecture and split separation of concerns. So you're only concerned about what you're publishing and you're doing and other people are, you know, uh, managing the concerns of other areas. Now, one of the challenges with a microservices architecture is orchestration and management of them. So instead of hosting one application, you might have to host a hundred applications or a thousand applications. Like, you know, these can scale into thousands or tens of thousands of, you know, very small, but discrete um, pieces of business logic. Um, And that's kind of where the notion of serverless, there's there's a few ways to approach this, right? This is just one of them, Um, but serverless, Arch, you know, um platforms sort of spawn, spawned out of this. And effectively what a serverless architecture allows you to do is you write your code to do your thing and then you give it to somebody to host for you and to manage automatically. So if um, another example of a serverless architecture is logic apps inside of Azure. You know, it's not code. Well, it kind of is because it's kind of a mix of, you know, declarative, you know, um, uh, user interface and code snippets inside of it. But effectively, you know, in Logic Apps, you design your your business flow, and then you upload it. Well, you don't upload it. You do it in the interface. You save it, and then Microsoft in Azure hosts it and runs it for you. And that's really powerful because in that serverless environment, you don't have to configure the web server. You don't have to, well, manage the operating system that that web server runs on. You also um, don't need to manage, you know, your deployment pipeline potentially to it because there's a lot of tooling in and around that. Because like in, you know, in Logic Apps, you just edit it in the interface. There's no publishing of code, right? Um, And Logic Apps is great. There's nothing inherently wrong with it, but there's obviously a lot of um, developers out there that want to be able to create these discrete um, units of business logic, but actually declare it with code. Um, so they want to be able to write in their languages, but also hand that code to Microsoft, well, at Azure, I should say, um, to host for them. And eff- effectively, that is the major benefit of serverless. You, you, you know, upload your code. And then, in theory, you forget about it. Well, you forget about the management of that that code and the hosting of it because it's at such a high level. You know, this is a platform as a service, but it's really, really high on that. You know, on that sort of um, sort of pyramid of you know um, IaaS, well, bare metal to to, to SaaS, um, because you know you're, you're you're giving Microsoft your code. And you're telling it how to run your function and what it does, and they, they they orchestrate that for you. Now I have talked about APIs because that's a very popular um, you know use case for for functions. But functions can also be for other things. So it could be you know a timer trigger that runs. Let's say you want to you know. Um, download an XML file from the internet, process it and put it in a database once every hour, Um, you could create a function with a timer trigger. um, And what that would have basically allowed you to do is say, hey, I want to run this every hour and the system will orchestrate that running of that function for you automatically. Now, if you come from a, you know, a logic app or a, um, a flow perspective, that's not going to seem too complicated to you because that's part of those serverless systems. Um, but as a, if if you're building say custom software, um, the management of those those timer jobs, um, you know, making sure that they complete correctly, they garbage collect c- collect correctly, um, and they execute correctly can be a challenge. And and that is one thing that serverless really takes away. Um, from developers and also system administrators.
1: Okay, great. So <clears throat> I think uh, you were talking about the responsibility sort of table that you can get around, you know, I, you know bare metal, IaaS, PaaS, SaaS, etc. And because, you know, these serverless solutions are at the sort of PaaS level, and you said like the higher level of that sort of PaaS, um, you don't have to worry about the OS whether it's running or not, et cetera, because it's all managed by Microsoft, which means from a security perspective, you don't have to worry about patching it because it's yeah, it's automatically done by Microsoft and et cetera. So you don't have to worry about vulnerabilities in the operating system side of it and maybe your core uh, maybe yeah, maybe your core language side of things, maybe. Um, but yeah, uh, and then you just got your vulnerability and stuff that you may have in your code. Um, but that might tie into the whole DevOps thing we were talking about the other day.
0: Yeah. So, so from a, you know, a vulnerability management's perspective, you know, you've got your, because logic apps, you know, wraps you in cotton wool even more than function apps, right. Um, It's going to do a lot of that. um, You effectively can't define, you know, the versions of modules that they use under the hood and, you know, for their passing and all of those types of things. So you still have to manage your third party dependencies that you've got inside of your code. You know, you might use uh, NuGet or you might use npm to bring in packages and you know other open source tools pot- potentially, or maybe you know your own tools. Um, so you have to manage that. So that's where um, um, a defender for DevOps comes in because it would help you with that that scanning. Um, but then you also need to think about you're still your um, your threats in terms of web application development, things like SQL injection, cross-site scripting, things like that, you've still got to handle um, a lot of that for you, if, for yourself, if, if that makes sense, um, because you do have a lot more um, flexibility in what you are able to do um, uh, by yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> okay, so Sam, um, you kind of mentioned them just a minute ago, but um, what are Azure functions?
0: Yeah. Okay. So, um, so I suppose we've gone into this quite a, you know, quite a bit anyway. Um, But what Azure Functions is doing is it's taking, you know, it's allowing you to run um, functions, uh, code functions, um, in a serverless environment. So you can define a number of uh, functions in uh, the language of your choice. We'll talk about. languages um, further on, um, you effectively upload your code. You can upload multiple functions inside of sort of one function app. Um, and you can do things like, you know, process file uploads, you know, um, processing data, running scheduled tasks. Um, we talked about web APIs. Um, you can also set triggers to respond to database changes and, and things like that. So if you are in sort of the flow and logic apps world, a lot of those triggers are gonna be quite similar to you because it's the same type of platform. You're just managing the code um, yourself, basically. Um, so effectively, what I do is I write my code. Um, I I would assume that you would check it into some sort of source control and then upload it into um, Azure Functions. Um, and then it's gonna upload, they're gonna verify it. Um, there are some configuration files that wrap around your code. So let's say you're writing C sharp, there's a way to set your entry points for the functions and a config file describing how the function works basically. So there, there is a little bit of difference between a like a straight web API project and C sharp in functions. There's also some things you can and can't do with functions. So, you know, if you're thinking about porting in an application that you've got already and splitting it apart, you need to think about how certain things work. And these functions, um, they, they, they have a maximum uh, memory consumption of 1.5 gigabytes. Um, and we'll talk about pricing and cost because the way that pricing is calculated on the consumption model um, is a little bit more complex than, than other systems. But effectively what you do is you, um, I think you can, I'm not sure the exact... Um, max execution time for uh, consumption. I want to say five minutes. That might be wrong. Don't quote me on that. There's a max execution time um, and you can effectively use up to 1.5 gigabytes of memory Um, and you can run for any, any period of time up to that max execution time. So what that effectively allows you to do is just code, you know, upload your functions and then run them Um, and all of that there's no containerization from your perspective there's none of that management it just it just hosts it for you automatically
1: wow i mean that sounds that sounds great you know not do too much to get them going like you said there's a bit of additional config to sit on top to tell it how to operate but outside of that you just write your code like you you would normally um so yeah so I think we kind of covered this actually, but um, how are the Azure Functions hosted in Azure?
0: Okay, so yes, yeah, so there's a there's a few different ways, and I'm I'm going to call it out that the vast majority is probably going to be consumption. So, like a uh, like a Logic App um, is building consumption, right? So for every run that you do, you are charged for the number of actions that you perform uh, in Logic Apps little bit different on billing on that but effectively you just pay on um as your functions in on the consumption plan you just pay per execution and it's basically a balance of the num i'll I'll give you some specific examples later on but it's like the number of time um it's the number of time times the amount of uh, memory that you use effectively to get your gigabyte seconds of, of memory that you've used so um so each one one individual run will cost a certain amount of money and then you just pay for the number of runs that you actually execute so what's great about that is is that you only pay for when your functions are running one of the you know one of the hardest things with any web application is if you've got an application that so let's say let's just, let's say it's just a timer job, that wakes up every hour. And let's say it's not business critical. Let's say you're automating something, right? Um, And, you know, it wakes up every hour. If you were to run that traditionally, you'd have to have a web server running like 24/7. You know, the web server doesn't boot up, does it to run its task and shut it down, just stays on all the time. So things like app service, um, there are cheapest tiers, but you basically have to pay for an app service instance running constantly. Whereas the consumption you can still write code um, but you can only be charged when it actually executes. And also you get the benefit of being able to scale automatically as well because you're not provisioning virtual cores and memory, you know, um you've, you've effected, you you've effectively you have got unlimited scale but you know if you do need to scale up there's no instances to scale up. It's it's effectively the 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 platform itself handles um, the execution of of that. Um, One of the downsides of serverless functions is they can take some time to warm up, should we say. So if you think your function is going to execute and then it's not going to exist anymore, but when it boots up, it's got to load like, you know, the binaries into memory that you're going to use, right? So, you know, if you include json.net because you, you do some json parsing, it needs to load those DLLs into memory, basically, at that time, and your application's code. So what you can have is on a cold start, you can have a few, um, usually hundreds of milliseconds of startup delay. Um, and, and 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 that's that can sometimes be an issue for certain applications. Um, so what you can do is you can go onto a premium plan, and a premium plan allows your you basically provision virtual cores and memory to an instance that's running 24 7 basically so you don't have to wait for any of that execution to occur or that warm-up to occur you can then just start uh, running straight away um, it's also probably worth pointing out now um, is that you know a premium plan um, allows you to also do things like you know custom linux images and things like that that of what you're actually running on because you've got an instance um, running there, basically. Um, and even though every single execution on the consumption plan is very cheap, is actually quite expensive resource. You know, if you were to absolutely hammer, you know, the, the consumption plan, you would start to incur a, a lot of cost. Whereas the premium plan, you might get better economies of scale with provisioning an actual virtual core for you to for you to run on. Um, And then um, there's a dedicated plan as well. Um, So what you can do is you can run it uh, within an app service plan that you've currently got. So, you know, the premium plan is effectively having its own sort of Azure functions um, plan, but you can actually embed Azure functions into app service plans um, as well. Um, So you get the predictive scaling and costs. But you can also attach it to sort of underutilized virtual machines that um, app service plans are currently running on to like sort of bolt them onto the side um, effectively.
1: Okay, cool. Um, So there's probably like a tipping point at some point then between consumption versus um, premium versus dedication. Um, At some point from a cost perspective, maybe from a resource perspective if you're hammering it too hard or you need it to be instantly, you know, instantly there kind of thing. Um, and we've seen, or I've seen at least, a lot of consumption used um, in our sort of day-to-day, kind of because I'm, we're sort of co-hosting them with, with Logic Apps when we can't do what we want in Logic Apps. We jump to out, out to Function Apps to write the code, because sometimes you can do it quicker. Yeah. Or simpler, I should say. Simpler. Yep. Um, okay, so... The kind of three plans, like you said, consumption, premium, dedicated. Uh, what's the sort of costings around those then?
0: Okay, just sorry, just before I jump onto that, I did just miss yeah. one bit out there as well, is that um, you can also host functions um, not just inside of uh, what I just described. There's also the ability to host them inside of Azure Container Apps as well. I believe that's um, a preview at the moment. I think, um, so that you can effectively isolate those functions running inside of containers, but hosted um, in in Azure, um, effectively. Um, And that you can also do it on uh, Kubernetes using Azure Arc as well. I believe that's also, or maybe that might be the one that's preview at the moment. So if you don't want to run, um, because in theory, then you could run it on bare metal, couldn't you? You know, because you could write Azure functions, which then get deployed to Kubernetes that could potentially be in your, you know, your colo or in your, in your data center, right? Um, at that point, there are other ways to do microservices architectures with Kubernetes, but you might want, you know, the end-to-end, you know, ecosystem that Microsoft gives you, right? Because Azure functions is well supported in Visual Studio, Visual Studio Code, so that can help you um, with that. And that can, you know, sometimes you might need customer hardware requirements depending on your, you know, your environment. Um, so, so yeah, that's that, that's something just to call out.
1: Okay, so that's probably, that scenario might also be around um, where you need to process data. Yeah, If you definitely. need to put it in yeah. another location.
0: Exactly, yeah. 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 Okay. You, you might have some really sensitive functions that you want to run, like, you know, on-prem, but you might not want, you might want the flexibility of, serverless and microservices but not the headache of orchestration yourself i mean if you are running kubernetes you've probably got a bit of a (laughs) an ops i call it a headache anyway because it's 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 not simple to 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 run basically
1: yeah okay so i think they're doing i think they're doing something for that for logic apps as well which isn't this topic but um there must be kind of they're kind of based on the same sort of yeah, in, they can all
0: go into apps. They can all be, like, embedded into apps. So it's all kind of the same thing. Service it feels technology, like. but yeah. different
1: ways of... Um, Definitely. showing it, yeah. Okay, so costs. How how do you work out the costs, and, you know, is it free? Is there any yeah, free?
0: so um, the consumption plan, um, there's a... Fr- so the, the way it's built for consumption is gigabyte seconds, right? So... So I'll try and use a very simple, I'll use a very simple example. Let's say your function app uses a gigabyte of memory and it runs for exactly one second to make it as simple as possible. <laughs> Sounds like a pretty beefy function. Um, functions f- can scale from anywhere from 128 megabytes of memory all the way to 1.5 gigabytes of memory. So the minimum bill unit for the, the actual memory allocation is 128 megabytes. So, you know, if you only use sixteen megabytes or something like that, then you're still going to be charged for one hundred and twenty-eight meg. And then it's you know it's it's how much memory it used versus how long it used it for. So, let's pretend in this scenario that it used the whole one gigabyte for one second to make the calculations as simple as possible. So for each run, you would use one gigabyte second, wouldn't you, um, of time. So there's two two elements of billing. There's the execution time um, in gigabyte seconds and the number of executions. So there's a free grant of four hundred thousand gigabyte seconds. So in theory, you could run that function four hundred thousand times um, before you hit your your you know your free um, consumption. Um, and also there is a million executions. So those 400,000 executions that we talked about would be covered um, as well. Then it's pay as you go. So I can't tell you the cost because there's so many zeros in front of it. <laughs> 0.000016 giga- uh, dollars per gigabyte second. And then 20 cents per million executions. So... I think I did rough maths as just a working example. A uh, a function that utilises 100, I think it was 128 megabytes. It was like basically a function that runs for 250 milliseconds, and a, a, a function running for 250 milliseconds is, unless you're calling out to another service and waiting for that response, 250 milliseconds is quite a decent amount of time. Um, so you've got 250 milliseconds. And then I, I think I calculated it to like, I think it was 128 megs worth of memory that was used. Because 128 megabytes of memory for a singular function action is quite a lot unless you're doing high num- like high amounts of data processing or machine learning or something like that. Um, and then I think I calculated that 100 million runs of that would cost something like $42 or something like that. So, you know, what we're really talking about is, you know, insane numbers and and, and an, ins- an insane amount of, you know, memory and resources being used before you start to be charged. Um, I think it's worth calling out as well, is there's no concept of CPU or vCore in consumption of function apps. It's all around the memory. Um, because I believe that the amount of time it takes to execute is effectively your you're bound by the CPU that's there. If that makes sense, right? You don't you don't provision like faster CPU or anything like that. Your function would just take longer to run, basically. I don't know the specifics of the actual like uh, you know um, resources from a CPU perspective that you get access to. Um, it does also create a storage account um, to 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 host the code and and bits and bobs like that. Um, So there's there's that to cover. Um, You know, if you had a lot of resources that backed it, you might incur some storage costs, but they're relatively cheap. Um, And then you've also got networking on top of that. So standard Azure egress costs and all of that sort of stuff. Um, Then when you go on to the premium plan, um, you effectively can um, you 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 run like um what's the best way to describe it to describe it you run um, an instance or you know um, an instance inside your scaling plan you have to at least have one running at any one time but you can scale up to multiple I'll call them scale units is probably the the right term um, but it's so you can go pay as you go you can do one year and three year savings plans as well so that you're effectively because you're provisioning v cores um, you can start to do that as well um, but they are um they're well depends what scale you're at but they can be a lot more expensive than starting with consumption you're looking at you know one year saving on a single V core is hundred twelve dollars per month on a singular v core um, and memory is um, eight dollars per month per gigabyte on a one year savings plan so if you do need to stretch beyond the 1.5, you know, gigabyte limit, maybe that's what you need for your function. You're going to have to go to premium, but it does allow you to um, actually provision your resources um, and also, you know, um, grab some savings there. And I would, i probably bet that, you know, run for run, you'd probably get better value if you're absolutely hammering it on. The premium plan would be my, but I've never got to that level with function apps. It's probably worth saying because consumption is just great, really. Um, um, and then uh, Azure Arc-enabled Kubernetes is just free at the moment because it's in, um, preview. Um, so there's not really much to to talk about there. And then when we talked about embedding it in App Service, I think it would just be covered under your App Service pricing um at that point if you if you went down that dedicated route.
1: Okay, cool. Um the 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 sort of free plan part, is that per function app or is that per subscription? I thought it was maybe a across a subscription that limit, but I might be wrong.
0: I would have thought it would be across subscription. I don't have that in my okay. notes. Let me just check the I'm I'm gonna say that it's per subscription because it would be because okay. then you could just make as many functional <laughs> apps if you want to, but yeah. you know, that that might be the case.
1: Um, but yeah, it's still a lot of compute, a lot of actions that you can take even with that. Same thing with like what we've seen in, in logic apps there being a lot of runs on a I think it's on the subscription, you know, for actions and things like that. Yeah, so.
0: get 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 you building, get you invested in that platform, right? you know, see the value of it at a really big level as well, right? Because we're not just talking about, you know, you can, you know. So, yeah, it's a really good way to start, definitely.
1: Cool. Okay, so moving on, um, you kind of talked about um, choosing languages that you could use to, you know, to create your function apps. So So what languages are supported?
0: Okay, so out of the box, there's C Sharp, Java, JavaScript, PowerShell, Python, and TypeScript, which is kind of JavaScript, but it's not, but it kind of is. <laughs> um, but then you can also um, you can also wrap your own uh, what, what's the best? I think it's called a custom handler. Um, so what you can do is you can build a custom handler, and in the docs there's examples of Go or Rust. Fun- uh, functions being created and you effectively um, create a custom handler in the web server um, to actually uh, write your own um, effective um, starting point for the functions in a different uh, like native language it's hard for me to explain but but effectively what you do is you say um this executable is the entry point for my functions um go there to 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 execute. Um, so there's a, a couple of really good examples on the um, on the on, on the docs to basically be able to bind into go and rust. So I think what they've done there with with that is the ability for if you're not supported out of the box but you do have other languages that you want to support, you can wrap around and and, and utilize an actual native binary um, and, and, and system.
1: Okay, cool. So there's definitely a lot of languages there that you can use. It's not limited yeah. at all, is it? No, no. Really. And it's
0: it's got the it's got all the I'm gonna call it major ones. Especially for like web application development, right? You know, and um a good mix of, you know, uh more I would say like commercial and enterprise driven languages, you know, like yeah. Java, your C sharp. Um, even though like C sharp might it's now open source, right? But it's more enterprisey, you know. Uh, in you know, background, um, and you've also got things like Python and uh, and also Node.js and and JavaScript and TypeScript. So yeah, really powerful.
1: Cool. Okay, so what sort of scenarios can you develop for?
0: Yeah, so I think we've talked. You know, we've we've met, we've mainly talked around. You know. um We've mainly talked about very simple scenarios, right like I want to upload a file I want to process some data you know I want to execute a single function or you know unit of work um, effectively. Um, but if we take serverless to a another level, let's say let's call it and we'll, and we'll call them stateful functions now when we might currently have let's say we have two functions that we want to run so we first do our addition and then we feed our addition into something else like a subtraction or something like that um what do we do there do we do we do we tell the addition function to then talk to the subtraction function that could be that might not be right because sort of the the chain of responsibility might not be there if if that makes sense because you know if I'm the addition guy then all I care about is addition I don't care about then calling the next function in the chain right because you know one of my users might just want to do you know um, addition the next one might want to do an addition and subtraction if that makes sense like chain functions um, together. Um, And then so then what you've got to think about is is do I introduce another function to orchestrate that, right? Um, Which is completely possible. That's what you probably have to do. Um, But that's actually built into uh, functions. So what you can do is you can define stateful workflows by writing orchestration functions, um, which then uses entity functions um, to actually do the, the work, if that makes sense. So you can chain workflows together, but you chain them together, say programmatically, you define how they communicate with each other. So we have smaller entity functions that are just discrete pieces of work. And then we've got orchestration functions, which actually do the, well, orchestration um, of that that work, basically. Um, Now, what we're now getting sort of into and I'm not going to go into it in in depth because it's like a whole part of you know computer science really um but I just wanted to call out that you can do stateful functions within side of um Azure functions because it's it is a it is a challenge when you're building these disconnected microservices to manage state and how you know, the machine sort of works together, uh, basically. So it's taking a lot of complexity away from developers and putting it in the platform, uh, basically.
1: Okay, cool. Thanks. Um, okay, so we kind of talked about, you know, egress stuff, pricing. So, you know, what is what is there for networking, you know, net handling the network?
0: Yeah, so similar to other serverless, um, you know, products in... Um, Azure. In order to get um, full like VNet networking support, you can't be on the consumption plan. Uh, basically, so if you do have a private networking requirement or a specialized networking requirement, where I'm not even going to call it a specialized networking requirement because binding onto a VNet isn't particularly that special, is it nowadays? But you know, if you if you, if you need that level of control, you're going to need to be on the premium plan at a minimum because uh, the consumption plan isn't going to isn't going to give
1: you that okay cool so it's it's out on the internet in effect or publicly facing kind of thing with controls in front of it um or about binding to your vnet for in effect um, internal or private network um connectivity yes exactly okay cool um So how do Azure functions scale? We kind of talked, you talked about the scale units. Um, Can you go into a bit more detail?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously we get that great benefit with consumption apps. You know, you know, you've effectively not really got to worry about scaling at that point. And, you know, especially with a lot of public facing APIs, you can really struggle with scaling. You know, if you're running, let's say you're an events company, you run online events and, you know, Normally nobody's logged into your system and then, you know, ever so, you know, maybe everybody wants to order their tickets um, for a concert that's coming up. You know, you could have thousands of people, you know, hit your website or or something um, with that consumption based, you know, approach. You're going to you're going to get that scaling built in without you really having to do anything. It's completely Azure's responsibility to, to handle it from that perspective. Um and then you know you still get the ability to do scaling with the uh, premium and dedicated plans. Um, you just have to set some of those parameters yourself, you know, if you want to auto scale um, if you want to pre-provision, you know because that's that's a real benefit of any of these sort of past systems is you know you don't sometimes even need to do auto scaling because what you can do is you can just say, okay, the day before we're going to go and add two more scale units in and we're going to run those for two days or three days and then we'll shut them back down after we need them because we could just pay as you go right so you know a lot of the time now when i've worked on systems in the past we've just you know six hours before the event happens we go and bump all the servers up you know just to make sure that there's you know there's no time to even scale you know it doesn't matter if we spend a little bit of extra money over the next couple of days and scale them back down you do have to remember to scale them back down though, because that can be dangerous, right? <laughs> I haven't learned that from experience. Not. Um, so So, yeah, so there's, you know, you still get all the benefits of app service I- inside of this as well. Um, you're just handling even less of the web server, basically.
1: OK, great. So is there anything else you want to talk about Azure Functions? no
0: there is there's there's obviously a lot more to go into really you know um high availability data persistence things like that. Uh, but what I wanted to do is just really try and you know sort of talk about the the value of the serverless aspects of it if if that makes sense not sort of a technical deep dive into like actually writing um, the functions themselves so um yeah if, if it's if, if you're if you're writing um especially if you're writing, You know C sharp web APIs. um, You know, do look at see if if this is a viable hosting solution for you, um, because it is. It can be very powerful.
1: Okay, great. Well, yeah. Thanks. Um, It's been a great um, overview. I think definitely in in a you know a deep, uh, not necessarily a really big deep dive, but definitely a dive into what's you know what the capability is.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I just wanted to call out uh, as well. We've got a previous episode on. Azure Static Web Apps, um, Season 3, Episode 10. And what you can do with Static Web Apps is you can embed Azure functions into your projects. Um, So one thing I haven't really spoken about is single page applications. Um, So Static Web Applications, Uh, a lot of the time they are paired with serverless functions to do their APIs. Um, And what you can do is you can sort of glue them together in a project and deploy them as one uh, thing. Uh, basically, with static web apps, I don't think we went into too much detail about Azure Functions in that episode. Um, but if if you are a um, a web application developer and you've got a single page application like a um, a React, a Gatsby, an Angular, a Svelte, a Vue, whatever your front end you know flavor is, um, look at that combination between serverless backend and um, static front end as well. That's a very modern and um efficient way to to deploy and, and build. So right. Alan, um next episode. Um I think it's it's your one next.
1: Yes, so I'm gonna talk about Microsoft Defender for Cloud and the cloud security posture management. As that was kind of my topic at the uh the InfoSec on nice. Pretty okay. geared for it. So <laughs> we might as well just do it. We haven't done an episode on it. We've talked about it I think um in various episodes around Defender for Cloud but Um, let's talk about you know being able to detect misconfigurations and highlighting risks within your multi-cloud environment
0: okay yeah and that's a great um it's a a great set of tools and sort of a great um area you know especially from the security side right um there's a lot of value in gaining that visibility so yeah that should be a that should be a great episode for sure
1: yeah so that yeah exactly it's um Understanding what you don't know. Definitely, yeah, exactly. Uh, did you enjoy this episode? Um, if so, do consider listening, uh, leaving us a f- um, some a review on Apple or Spotify. This really helps us reach out to more people like you. Um, if you have uh, any specific feedback or suggestions, we have a link in our show notes to get in contact with us.
0: Perfect. Thanks, Alan, and I'll catch you all in the next one.
1: Yep. Thanks, all.